0: Paddle Ground Productions presents Brass, the audio series, episode 26, Factories and Footlights. The year is 1886, and much has changed, both in England and elsewhere. In the southwestern Parisian neighborhood of Grenelle are some of the many factories of the city. In large, faceless buildings, workers toil long and difficult hours, producing rails, machinery, and ironwork. The forges and anvils spark and glow with heat and the taste of singed air. It is to one such building that Lord Brass and the inventor and aviator Conrad Grassley have come this spring evening, and though it is dark, work in the building continues apace. They cross the vast central room past two dozen machinists, hard at work at a dozen different stations, while other workers scurry about refilling supplies and moving along a series of delicate metal carriages.
1: Ah! Dr. Jones! Mr. Armitage, delighted to see you. This is
2: all coming along well, hey?
1: Well, yes.
2: Might we step into your
1: office? A capital idea.
3: It is wonderful seeing our craft take shape. And with such rapidity. Have you had luck with your new etheric batteries?
1: Some. I believe that I will be able to guarantee more than 12 times the duration of the batteries we replaced. And with some adjustments, I believe, better in time. How many of the craft are complete? Thirty, with half a dozen done by next week, assuming our deliveries arrive as scheduled.
2: Oh, they shall. Our bills are scrupulously paid. Though my own finances are shrinking at a considerable rate, it's really quite remarkable how rich Lord Whitestone truly is.
1: And how is the Jungle Lord?
2: Well, and wonderfully energetic, as always. He and Cyril are making an investigation of the Graveyard King this evening, who we suspect of running the distribution of contraband to and from England. The Graveyard King? The nom de guerre, as it were, of an old foe who bilks the grieving, robs the dead, and
1: otherwise gives the funeral business a poor reputation. I will tell you this, Lord Brass. There is no one like you English for coming up with a wonderful nickname.
3: The Graveyard King's French, actually.
1: Another reason he's so unpleasant. When I was a young man, I had a nickname. And what was that? Clever Hank.
3: Rather rural, isn't it?
1: (laughs) It was. I grew up in a cotton plantation. When I was just a lad, I took apart a broken cotton gin and fixed it so it worked five times as well. You can imagine what it did to my mind the first time I saw an analytical engine.
3: Not surprising, Dr. Jones. Your mechanistic skills, particularly regarding your new battery, are astonishing.
1: You are kind to say so. I think very highly of you and Lord Brass's abilities and craft. And that is why I have agreed to facilitate this meeting. Let me give introductions. Mrs. Matilda Jocelyn Gage and Mrs. Carrie Nation. Mr. Alvin Armitage and Mr. Conrad Grassley. Good day. Delighted to make your acquaintance.
4: Gentlemen, we are pleased
5: to meet you. We understand you have sympathy for our cause.
2: I'm
3: sorry? What cause?
4: The abolition cause, sir. We, and the women and men that we represent, are dedicated first and foremost to the eradication of the greatest of all social evils, slavery. Here, here. And alcoholic beverages. I'm sorry? Pray excuse my companion. Mrs. Nation is one of our most respected and formidable reformers, but her enthusiasms extend past the causes of manumission and universal suffrages, to include temperance.
5: I shall not say that as a social ill the abuse of alcohol is worse than slavery, which makes a beast out of a man, but... It makes a man into a beast which is as great a sin in the eyes of God.
3: Does that include gin and tonics?
5: Of
2: course.
3: But how else can one take one's quinine in the tropics?
2: Uh, Alcohol is best in absence or in moderation, Mrs. Nation, I will agree.
1: Perhaps I could interest the company in seltzers.
4: Thank you so much, Dr. Jones.
1: Ladies... I was tremendously
2: pleased that Dr. Jones agreed to facilitate contact with you.
4: Fortunately, we were on a tour of the continent and could arrange a detour.
3: We're delighted that you could join us.
4: Delighted. Now, what have you to give to the cause? Carrie? Excuse us, gentlemen. We've had little luck during this trip in raising funds that are vital to our efforts and are feeling a bit desperate.
5: The time approaches for desperate measures, Matilda. That's quite an impressive hand axe you have there, Mrs. Nation. A tomahawk, Mr. Armitage. I travel nowhere without it.
2: It
3: sounds like your cause might be a bit expensive.
1: Ladies, I should have been clear. These two men are engaged in their own subversive efforts for a different cause and have brought me into their confidence. There is no need to dissemble with us.
4: Then you know what we truly stand for. The
1: overthrow
2: of the government of the southern states of America and the freedom of every enslaved person living therein. By all means necessary.
5: Including violence
2: and terror. Indeed. Dr. Jones, however, has suggested that your efforts are preliminary.
4: Preliminary? But promising... We've managed some impressive industrial sabotage and civil unrest. But the government authorities have been ruthless in their retaliations.
1: If the person caught is an escaped slave, they murder his entire family as retribution.
3: Horrible.
1: Part and partial of the brutality of the plantation system. With humans worked and whipped like animals while southern gentility smiles from their porches. You say you grew up on a plantation? Yes, Mr. Armitage. I was born a slave. Forgive me, but I thought you were Liberian? Today, I am. But I was born in the American state of Mississippi before the war between the states. I escaped as a young man to the north and was part of the great diaspora of my people to Liberia in the aftermath of them losing the war. You did not wish to remain in the northern states. The northerners were scarcely friendly after their defeat. Some blamed us for their loss, while to others we were a mark of shame. I, and many of my brothers and sisters, decided to return to Africa and help create a homeland true to the ideas of America, not the sad, divided shell it has become.
4: Dr. Jones and his fellow Liberians have been instrumental to us in the cause. His improved etheric batteries and portable analytical engines have been used in any number of ways in our covert war. They're a whiz at artillery calibrations.
2: Mr. Grassley and I have seen firsthand the mechanistic genius of the good doctor. Very well. It seems that we have related methods, though separate aims... My hope is that once we outline to you our goals, we may find a way of allying ourselves. Mrs. Nation, I hope your abhorrence of alcohol does not extend to a
5: refusal to toast. Not in the least. To new friends, and may they bring blessings. And to our old enemies, may they burn in hell.
2: Cheers.
3: Yeah,
4: yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah. Now. Let me explain our situation. Firstly, my name is not honoured.
0: As Lord Brass begins to speak, in the back office of the Lyceum Theatre, the theatre's business manager, Bram Stoker, discusses a difficult problem with the First Lady of the stage, Ellen Terry.
6: I see little that can be done, Mrs. Terry. Mr. Irving agrees. We shall therefore close the theatre for the remainder of the year under the pretense of making renovations.
4: Mr. Stoker, we made renovations only two years ago.
6: Then we shall say the renovations need renovations. Sounds plausible enough.
4: But why don't we go ahead and mount this rotten play?
6: Mrs. Terry, if we give in to mounting this production, we shall most likely be ruined. If we do not, we shall most likely be burnt to the ground. Neither option is good for a box office.
4: Oh, who knows, Mr. Stoker? The audience decides when to come and when not to come.
6: Yes, and when they decide not to come, they'll stay away in droves.
4: Yes. The play is dreck. But it's no worse than that simply awful play by Tennyson from a couple of seasons ago. And remember our
6: houses? Lord Tennyson is the poet laureate. The author of this is... Not. Still...
4: I simply can't see another option.
6: But the stage effects alone.
4: (coughs) Mrs. Terry? Yes? Who are you? We have some business with Mrs. Terry. What sort of business?
0: Theatrical business.
4: Oh. Oh, my. Are you an actor, by chance? A sportsman, retired. You've got quite a presence, sir. Might we have a word? Of course, young man. Mr. Stoker, you can leave us.
6: Very well. I'll be down in the box office, looking through the trades for a suitable position.
4: Now, what can I do for you two gentlemen? I'm not actually a gentleman. Oh, you're not at all, are you? On the other hand, I assume you are...
0: To all intents and purposes, Dan Abraham.
4: Ellen Terry. Yes, you are undoubtedly a man... I have some experience with them, you see.
7: You may remember me from the opening of Oscar's play.
4: That was last season, my dear. Well, I was
7: playing the role of your maid. Did I have a maid? Somewhat, though you persuaded Oscar to cut most of my
4: lines. Oh, my. Apologies, dear. Wait. You're the young woman who solved the mystery of those poison pen letters. I also did that, yes. Gwendolyn Brass. How absolutely delightful to see you. Hadn't I heard you were dead? That is the
7: general assumption. Is that who you are? It is. And if you don't mind, I'd ask for both of your discretions about this. It's literally a matter of life and death.
4: Of course, my dear. I'll just treat it like one of those pieces of theatre gossip that is far too juicy to share with anyone else. Now, how can I help you? Are you two looking for roles? What? No. Uh,
0: I'm not an actor.
4: You could be, Mr. Abraham. You've got quite a profile. No, we're here for other... Is it a new play by Mr. Wilde? (laughs) I wish. But alas, both Mr. Oscar Wilde and Mr. George Bernard Shaw have been deported from England as part of our government's England for the English efforts, thereby depriving our theatre of their new play, An Ideal Profession, which is a shame as there's quite a good part in it for me. Speaking of productions,
7: I hear you are considering a run of The Bastion of Britain, the play by Kensington Gore at your theatre.
4: I would not say considering. Rather, we are being coerced into producing it. Coerced? Indeed. Wait. What time is it?
0: Uh, half past seven.
4: Oh, in fact, we're awaiting a visit right now from our would-be producing partner. Now?
6: Here? This is Mrs. Terry. Mademoiselle Trasano and companions. Apparently so. Shall I send them up? Where can we? Behind those screens.
4: Don't worry, there's room for two. Heaven knows you won't be the first. <laughs> ah, Mademoiselle Trasano. Mrs. Terry. So kind of you to call. Can I get you and your two companions a refreshment? Thank you, No,
5: We have much to do today and limited time. So, have you read the manuscript of the Bastion of Britain?
4: I have. And? It has the delightful quality of novelty, for I'll admit, I've never read anything quite like it before. I believe it achieves an aspect of grandeur never seen before on the stage. It certainly is an achievement. When shall we meet the playwright? Oh, he's holed up in his office
5: tonight, hard at work on the final, perfected draft. I am
4: so pleased to hear that the next draft shall be perfect. What an achievement. Dear lady, in consultation with our business manager, Mr. Stoker... I'm sorry to say we just don't see how we can produce the Bastion of Britain here on the stage of the Lyceum. No. A play of such scope, with not only naval battles, but chases on horseback and an exploding steam train, would require so many resources, such novel effects, that it could not possibly make its money back, save with full houses. What makes you think the house won't be full? Oh, none of the theatres are seeing full houses this season. So many other things have taken up the public interest. And theatre, even grand spectacle like the Bastion of Britain, simply isn't in fashion. Did you know that there's talk in Parliament of bringing back public executions? And let me tell you, there are not many plays that can compete with a hanging in the square.
5: It is true that a disaster will draw a crowd. A fire, for example. Why, you'd get no end of people showing up if a
4: fine establishment like this were to become a conflagration. Mademoiselle Tresano, due to you and your playwrights influence on certain officials in the present administration as well as your reputation for conflict escalation, you can have this play staged at any theatre in London. There are venues that are bigger than ours, and ones more suited to the scale of this show. Why here? Two reasons, Mrs. Terry.
5: The first is the Lyceum's reputation. You and Mr. Irving have created a company of players, led by yourselves, that is renowned as the greatest in Britain. And, therefore, the playwright and myself believe that this is the perfect setting for our rich gem. Thank you. But perhaps... The
4: second is related to the first three times we met. But, Mademoiselle, this is only the second time that we've met in person. This is the fifth...
5: We first met in 1878, then again in 1880, and most recently in 1882. I'm sorry, I don't remember... I auditioned for you and Mr. Irving for parts in Hamlet, The Lady of Lyon, and Much Ado About Nothing. And for all my efforts, you did indeed give me nothing. Oh. No role... Not so much as a lady-in-waiting. Not even a callback. A life devoted to the theatrical art and not even worthy of you remembering my face or name. I think I would have remembered Tresano. That is not my real name. Tresano is my nom de la criminalité. For once I discovered that I had no use whatsoever for a stage name, I turned to a life of crime. It's got quite a bit of dash. Trisano. Thank you. I believe it will look quite splendid on the marquee of this theatre. I had understood Mr. Gore was the
4: playwright. No, oh, he is, but I shall be the star. Oh? No, so you doubt my abilities? Not in the least. I had just supposed that the role of Philomena, the noble Bodicea reborn, had been written for myself. Oh, <laughs> no. I shall essay that role. That's probably best. I am not sure I could do it justice. And besides, a touring production of Much Ado has asked my date. Oh no, Mrs. Terry,
5: there's a role that you simply must play. Do you recall the part of Philomena's maid, Esther? Esther? Yes, her childhood nurse turned camp follower. I don't recollect it from my reading. She doesn't have many lines, I'm afraid. But is a wonderful portrayal of ancient loyalty creaking after her mistress on aged bones until she selflessly dies protecting her. Oh, off stage. Well, I am so very pleased that we have agreed on our venue. I shall let you know next week the dates of our opening, and now uh, I and my friends must go. We've got a late meeting with a pyrotechnic artist of our acquaintance. His work is expensive, but we believe our production merits
4: the best. A good-bye. Farewell you provincial catawalla and take your two muscle-bound homunculi with you. So that's Trisano, eh? I knew I recognized her. Vaguely. And if she's
7: out with her goons, it might mean that Kensington Gore is back in his office alone. The nurse creaking after her mistress? I shall sooner die. Mrs. Terry! What? Do you have any idea where Kensington Gore might have his office? I do not. But
4: I might know who does Eric Yes
3: (gasps) How may I assist, Mrs. Terry
4: Do you have any idea where this Kensington Gore fellow resides?
3: I believe I do Where did he come from?
4: Eric, these two people seek the office of Kensington Gore
3: Of course, dear lady His lair is in the royal strand nearby
0: Will you two follow me?
4: And through the mirror?
0: No, it's some sort of reflective cloth.
4: My dear friend Eric knows every inch of all the old London theatres and how to get from one to another quite discreetly.
3: Theatrical architecture is something of a hobby.
4: Mrs. Terry,
7: are you sure?
4: You may trust Eric. I have trusted him with splendid results. Several times.
3: Always a pleasure, Dear Thespis.
4: Oh, you. Now, follow Eric. And please, do stop these hideous people. We shall. Oh, and Gwendolyn. Yes? Do come see me when this is all over. I owe you a proper part on our stage. I shall. And
7: thank you, Mrs. Terry.
0: And with that... Gwendolyn follows her companions through the Looking Glass and into the hidden passages that run beneath the theatres of London. Into what perils shall this mysterious figure take them? And what use can Lord Brass's plan have for American revolutionaries? Find out more about these and other pressing issues when we next join the adventures of the first family of the realm brass. Brass is manufactured by Battleground Productions and features Kate Cray as Lady Brass, Charles Leggett as Lord Brass, Catherine Grant Sutty as Gwendolyn Brass, and Jeremy Adams as Cyril Brass, with Larry Albert, Margie Bickman, Lisa Carswell, Yusuf Elgindi, Nancy Fry, Ronnie Hill, Philip Keeman, John Longenbar, Matt Middleton, Terry Edward Moore, Tad Morgan, and Nikki Vissel. Brass was recorded at Seattle Voice Academy, engineered by Shauna Pennington Bard and Chris Lea, with sound design by Kirsty Gilmore and music composed by Bruce Monroe. It was written and directed by John Longenbach. For more information on Brass, go to battlegroundproductions.org. Find us on Facebook and Instagram, and to support us, fund us on Patreon and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts.